few years ago, I was in the locker room at the gym, and this man, we were kind of in each other's way, this man said something to the effect of, excuse me, sorry I'm in your way, and as he spoke, I noticed an accent. Maybe you've been in a situation like that, and you notice somebody speaking with an accent, and you're trying to, to identify it, and as he spoke a little more, I realized it was a unique one. He, he had one of those, kind of like Billy Graham, the, the southern aristocratic, you know, like an uppity southern accent, but with a little bit of a twist, and I couldn't figure it out. And when it ended up being just him and me in the locker room, I asked him about his accent, and he told me. He said, well, it's, it's unusual, I know, but my... My father was born in, in India, and he moved to the United Kingdom, and then he began some work in Louisiana at a leper colony, and worked there for years before he transferred up here to Washington State. And as he's saying all this, I knew I had to tell him. I said, I know who your dad is. I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a minute. We're in a series today, uh, Authentic Living Today. We arrive, we land in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. That's our text. Called to Suffer, part 3. And if you're tired of that title... This is the last one. There's no part four. We're not done talking about suffering today, but at least there's not another title like that. And here's the main title. That's kind of the subtitle. He will take care of you. Maybe that sounds familiar to you. God will take care of you. Someone once said, humility is a sign of greatness. Arrogance is a sign of weakness. However, it's a difficult thing to juggle if you, can, if you ever get to the point where you are confident about something, very confident about it, because you should be, it's hard to balance that not appearing to be arrogant when you're confident. And it's also hard not to judge somebody who is arrogant, but not, or who is confident but not arrogant, because it looks like arrogance sometimes, so be careful. Thought I'd give you that caveat as we begin by looking back at a verse from last week. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. Likewise, he just got done talking to leaders and how they're supposed to behave. You who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you. Now he's told the younger people, be subject to the elders. That's not popular. That's not trendy. If you send your kids to public school, you can guarantee in these modern times in the United States of America, your children are going to be taught at some point in time, I know that's what your parents teach you. But let me tell you something else. That's kind of the thing now. And so kids are growing up thinking that they know more now than ever than their parents. They don't even have to wait to become a teenager to start thinking this way. They start thinking this way early on because they're kind of taught this. 
But the Bible tells us here, it tells the children, to youngsters, listen to the elders, be subject to them. And then he goes on to say, clothe yourselves, all of you, that includes older people, younger people, all of us, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We can't pass that up without realizing we have to be humble toward one another. We can't just be humble in our own minds, in our own homes. We have to demonstrate humility to other people. That's how we're supposed to be as Christians. I gave you a scripture last week, and it's fascinating how these passages support each other. James chapter 4, verse 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We talked about that last week, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about that because I'm going to give you more of the passage in a minute. But I also want you to look at this next passage in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 5. The first part of it says, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. So if someone is arrogant, you make God sick. And you know, most of us feel that way anyway. When you see someone who is clearly, obviously, inarguably arrogant, people tend to not like those people unless you're arrogant and you might like a person like that. But most of us, like if you're watching a UFC fight, yes, guilty. If you're watching a UFC fight and a person is a showman and a, a bragster and acting like he's already won the fight before he won the fight and he's, he's you know, in every way obnoxious, about how overconfident he is, you want him to lose. Everybody wants that guy to lose. It, unless you're arrogant, then you probably like that kind of behavior. But God doesn't. The next verse, the beginning of our text today, says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on him, this is verse 7, because he cares for you. I don't know about you, but this, at least somewhat, reminds me of the old fable. And you can see up behind me, there's a modern, it's not that modern of a drawing, but much more modern than when it came out. This goes way back to, six, as far back as 620 B.C., where these fables were collected by supposedly a slave or slaves from Greece. Now, Jesus would later masterfully tell stories that we call parables, but back in this time, these were stories that were collected that motivated people before we had the New Testament, before we had Jesus. And in Greece in particular, that's where these were collected. You remember the story, the fable of the tortoise and the hare? Now, we don't always utilize it the way it apparently was intended, and we really don't know, because people interpret, people translate, and we don't really know what the original intent was. It's been used all kinds of ways to motivate. But the general idea, the way we teach it to our children is, you have this bragster of a bunny, a hare, uh, who's so fast, I'm so fast, I could beat anybody. And then you've got the tortoise that's very slow. They get sick of hearing all this from the rabbit and finally says, I'll race you. And everybody's like, this tortoise can't beat the hare. Well, as uh, the race begins, the rabbit, the hare, is so overconfident that, that, that he takes a nap. 
And when he wakes up from his nap, he notices, whoa, the tortoise is ahead. I've got to do something. And this plays out in the story depending on the rendition that you hear or the rendition that you tell. The, the, the hare, the rabbit, the bunny, whatever you call, and by the way, I do love bunnies. Tastes like chicken. <laughs> they, uh, this, this rabbit is acting so arrogant, he keeps getting distracted, doing things. That's no big deal. I'll relax. I'll, I'll go over here and relax. I'll go over here and relax. I, I can catch up and pass that tortoise anytime. And at the end of the story, you know, the tortoise wins the race. Because, the way we like to tell it to our kids is, because it's slow and steady is the way you win the race. That's the idea. You've got to keep the pace, keep going, and you can win the race, and arrogance will take you down. There's some scriptures that talk about that. We've got a lot to cover, so I'm not going to give you all of those. You can look them up. But I wanted to remind you of the idea of how arrogance can lead to your fall, as Solomon wisely said. Solomon went through a depression. I'm sure you know about this. If you've read the Bible, you know that he went through a time of depression, and he wrote down during that time how he had gained some wisdom. In Ecclesiastes, you can see Solomon had, had definitely learned that life was hard here on earth. And he wrote about some of this that pertains to what we're talking about in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 11 and following. Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Truth. Here's an illustration of something like that. This guy, you ever heard of LeBron James? Has he been in the news lately? There's a lot of controversy with him because he is uh, seen by a lot of people as extremely arrogant. He's very talented, but his arrogance seems to have turned off the fans. I could list more, but I won't. We'll read the text again because there's more here. The beginning of the text, verses 6 and 7 of 1 Peter 5. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. So you don't exalt yourself. Let God do that when he feels like it. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. He does. Now, if you were in Sunday school this morning with Jim, and Jim referred to it on the stage, they went through Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 and following, at least part of that text. I want to read that to you because you might not have been in Sunday school, but let's look at this. Therefore, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life. Some of your translations say don't worry. What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Now, it's interesting because we live in a time when so many of us are so arrogant, we are not going to let anyone tell us what to do. In fact, if you have a conversation with uh, somebody 
about how to de-escalate. Maybe you've been in some de-escalation training. One of the things they teach now in de-escalation, it used to be in de-escalation, it was a very simple thing. Calm down. Say it with a firm voice. Make sure you firmly plant yourself and say it like you mean it, and people calm down sometimes. Today, in de-escalation techniques, they tell you don't say that. Don't tell people to calm down. Because we live in a different time now. If you tell somebody to calm down, that's their cue to ramp it up. Don't you tell me to calm down. You want to see how this works? Try it in your marriage. See how that <laughs> plays out. <laughs> we live in a different time, for sure. But here, God's telling us, in His wisdom, this is Jesus speaking, by the way, in the Sermon on the Mount, He says, don't be anxious. So He's saying, don't worry. And that's some people's cue to say, don't you tell me don't worry. At least that's what they think in their head. It continues, Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than these, than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? I love that verse. If you haven't highlighted that one in this particular context, it's one worth highlighting. I'm going to read it again. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Because think about it. When we're worrying, what, what does it look like? Well, some people, when they're stressing, they're sitting on the bed staring out the window, sitting in a chair, staring out the window, staring at the walls, sitting in a car, not going in to where they should be going in. Just stressing, just focusing, just thinking, just dwelling. Laying in bed with her head ever so slightly lifted from the pillow, not exactly relaxing, and not going to sleep because they're stressing and tossing it around in their head. All the things that have been going on during the day, during the week, during the month, and what are the things that are coming ahead that you don't even know? I don't know, but I'm thinking about it. And when we do that, we just lose time. Have you noticed? You don't get time by stressing. You lose time by stressing. So that's why I love that passage. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? Your, your, your life is falling between your fingers. Time is going away as you choose to dwell on things beyond your control. So Jesus is telling us some common sense here. Hey, how much time are you adding to your life by stressing? We're supposed to pause and think and realize, oh, <laughs> I guess I'm just wasting time. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. Neither, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O oh, you of little faith? He's telling people, don't you trust God? He will take care of your needs. He continues... Therefore, don't be anxious, saying, 
What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is, is, uh, is its own trouble. Well, the one you want to highlight of all of them, besides the one I already told you, is verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. This is about prioritization. I showed you a, a, uh, a video a while back. If you want to see it again, I'll tell you how to find it, but I'm not going to show it to you today because we've got a lot of territory to cover. I want to show you something about how stress tends to work. So I have a chart up behind me. We'll start with the stressor. Now, the stressor could be anything. You can think of whatever that stressor is, that thing that, that causes you so much anguish. So much stress, so much anxiety, so much worry. There's a stressor. Now, by the way, so you, have you thought of it? You got it in your head? You got a stressor? I hope you are thinking of something that does that to you. If we were to go around the room, we're not going to do it. I'm not going to call on you to say what that is. But if you did, more than likely, there would be a whole bunch of other people in the room that would say, mm, not me. That's not my stressor. I have a friend that, there's a, there's a place called the Log Cabin Bar and Grill that sits in Lacey, Washington on Pacific Avenue. And I have a friend that at one particular point in time almost wrecked everything that was precious to him in his life because he went to that Log Cabin Bar and Grill. And, and there, it's a sad note, but he found more camaraderie there than he did at church. He felt like the people were more supportive and more encouraging to him there, and he became an alcoholic, and he stopped there every day after work. He'd stop by the log cabin, bar, and grill, and then he'd go home and listen to his wife ask, why do you do this, while he was drunk. His kids were disappointed in him, and his job was, his, he owned his own business, but things were unraveling. Finally, when everything seemed to be straightened out with him, he figured out, I cannot even drive on Pacific Avenue at that particular section and go by there. Because when I do, I think about the people that go in there that I love, the people that have loved me, and, they, and they're good to me, and I'm tempted to go back in there, and I can just start wrecking everything all over again. I'm, not doing, I'm just not even going to drive by it. That is his stressor. The log cabin bar and grill building reminds him of things he needs to stay away from so he doesn't even drive past there. But me, on the other hand, at the same time he was doing this, I drove past there at least twice a day. Not once did it ever do anything to me to stress me. Sometimes I'd think about him and I'd pray for him and his family. But I didn't have, that stressor didn't do anything to my mind like it did to him. So you got your stressor. Now here is where we go now we have stress perceived by the individual. This is where the stress actually begins. You see, he thought differently about that building than I did. I could drive by and it didn't faze me. He drove by it and it caused problems. It's best for him not to even think about it. 
Now, when you have stress perceived by an individual, that's when you begin to stress over the stressor. This is what happens. Your, brain's, your brain gets involved, and then it sends messages to the hypothalamus and to the pituitary gland as well. And you can see what that happens. It does some things. And then, watch this. Go ahead and click that next slide. Then it begins to do something. It wreaks havoc on your body. Watch these things. This will all pop up behind me, there's an increase in your heart rate, blood pressure, blood glucose, blood flow to active muscles and brain, oxygen uptake, strength, and general awareness. So all these things, this is basically your body is going through a wrenching because you're stressed. And, and then we're told, we're trained, we have to deal with it because we're going through so much and people that are closest to us are saying, you're stressed, you need to do something. So here's what we do. Go ahead and click that next one. JC, you can choose to have a stress release. Go to the gym. Hang out with friends. Seek counseling. You might even need on medication. Start a hobby, whatever it may be. And if you have stress release, and then you see this, it leads to body relaxation. Now you're feeling better because you chose to deal with it. Or, this is the fight or flight mechanism if you haven't seen it, you can do this, have no stress release. I don't have a problem. I'm not stressed. There's nothing wrong with me. Stop saying there's something wrong with me. There's nothing wrong. I'm the same. And so choosing that method, uh, you have a decrease in health and performance. You continue to go downhill because you're in denial. Now, modern, modern psychiatry... And modern psychology tells us, deal with it right here. You have all this, your body's going through all this, so deal with it right there. Choose to have a stress release. And that's, that's great. You need to make a decision. If your body's gone through all that and you're very stressed, you need to deal with it. You need to make a decision to, to deal with it. Do so, don't, don't say, I'm not going to deal with it. Deal with it. However, Jesus had a better answer. We just read it. You were in Sunday school. You read it. It was in Matthew chapter 6, I told you to highlight it. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be taken care of. All the things you need will be taken care of. If you prioritize kingdom things, God will take care of the things you need. It's not, he's not saying neglect working, making an income, and paying your bills. He's not saying that. He's saying prioritize the kingdom of God. And then God will take care of the rest. You still got to do your part, but here's what happens. Jesus is saying this. This is, this is big if you haven't figured it out yet. He's saying deal with it up here. Stress perceived by the individual before it becomes stress. See, you have a stressor. How you think about a given thing is what causes your stress. Did you know that? Yeah. You've heard people that have these terrible life stories who are hugely successful. And you have other people who have, eh, they had some struggles through life, but nowhere near that other person you're thinking about that had such a great success, and they can't seem to succeed at anything because they keep stressing over those littler things. I recommend to you, yes, if you, if you go through all this stress, you've got to deal with it, seek counseling, whatever. That's great. I do a lot of that. Counseling. But 
if you can, it'd be far better to deal with it before it takes its toll on you, don't you think? Don't let it grab a hold of you. That's what Jesus is saying. Don't, don't be anxious. I know our tendency, because we've been trained, is to say, don't you tell me, don't be anxious. <laughs> well, I'm not. Jesus did. So you can take it up with him. Look at that verse, the next verse. Be sober-minded. I love that little phrase, be sober-minded. That's also not trendy. <laughs> in your mind, you're supposed to be rational. That's not a world in which we live. I don't know if you know this or not. I, we don't teach logical reasoning in law classes like we used to. In fact, it's been relegated to a two-week course in most philosophy classes in law school. Did you know that? Logical reasoning. When I was, went to my first undergraduate seminary, I avoided taking classes under a man by the name of Seth Wilson because I heard how hard he was. I knew he was very wise, but I was afraid. Then it was announced that he would be teaching his last semester. And I thought, I've got to take an opportunity like this and study under him. So I tried very hard to figure out how to get some courses under him and I've, there were only two that would fit in my schedule for my degree objective, so I signed up for these two courses. One of them was polemics. Raise your hand if you have no idea what that means. That's what I thought. <laughs> That's the uh, study or art of the refutation of error. That's definitely not trendy. I mean, anymore, you, nobody's right or nobody's wrong. We'll talk about that another day, hopefully. But... There is actually a field of study called polemics, and those who do it are called polemicists. I signed up for a class that I had no idea what the word meant, but I signed up. It's a, it's a Seth Wilson class. I'm going to take it. I hope I can do this. And the other class was logic, it's a class on logical reasoning. Now, in, in our world today, most people talk about logical reasoning like they automatically just have it. They automatically do it. And there are some people who think they're smarter than the rest of us that throw it around, throw, other, throw a few other terms around, and they make it sound like they've, they've got it mastered when very few people actually do. In Seth Wilson's class, I watched a whole lot of people drop out. It just kept happening. He warned us at the beginning. He said that people would start dropping out. I stayed with it, but logical reasoning was a four-hour course which meant four days per week. You're, you're supposed to study two hours before you go to your one-hour class. And I must tell you, that was one of the hardest classes I have ever taken in my life. Logical reasoning is something that is no longer taught in law school. This was the last year that I know of that it was taught as a four-hour class in the seminary that I first went to. And... It used to be a required course to get your law degree. Because a lawyer, you would think, you know, all of the judges were former lawyers. You would think that a lawyer would need to be rational, wouldn't you? That's not the world in which we live now. The idea isn't to argue your case for the most reasonable outcome. Now it's 
sway a jury with emotion. Have you seen this? That's what they do. Sway a jury with emotion. Logical reasoning is not as big a factor as it once was. But we're being told by Peter, who had, a, he had the, this long, hard road of learning wisdom. He says, be sober-minded. That's what that means. Don't let anything cloud your judgment. Walking the dog yesterday, Stephanie and I and Hannah, uh, we were walking our dog and uh, a family was having a party and they invited us. And the first time uh, they invited us by trying to entice us with all of the alcohol. And I've told you this before. I will drink. I don't, I don't want ever drink to excess and I don't like the flavor of alcohol. So it's very rare that I ever do because I just don't like it. But and it's not a sin to drink. It's a sin to drink in excess. Absolutely. But we live in a world where people... That's, this is the thing now. To drink or drug until you, your judgment is clouded. That's what people think they're supposed to do. We've legalized all kinds of drugs. You, you can, in our state, police officers, especially in the Seattle and Tacoma area, aren't even allowed to arrest people if they have minimal amounts of methamphetamine. What kind of world do we live in? People think somehow that life is better if they cloud their judgment. <laughs> We're told by the Apostle Peter, be sober-minded. I'll tell you now, as I've told you before, I can do stupid all kinds of ways without putting something in my body to be more stupid. I can make big mistakes. I've got pains in my body because as we get older, we we're reminded of those times when we were younger and some of those pains in my body came as a direct result of me going, hey guys, watch this. And I got scars or broken bones to live with the rest of my life. And we're going to talk more about that in a minute. Not my stories, but... <laughs> Scars and broken bones and pain and stuff like that. We're not far from that, actually. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. We're supposed to have our minds clear so that we can be on the lookout because the devil is going to try to get us. He's going to try to distract us. Maybe some of you have experienced this lately. Maybe you've been through this where you, you, you've been through, maybe you remember the time when you were so focused on the kingdom. You were going to do everything you could to please Jesus, and then some things happened along the way, and you're just not there anymore. I don't, I don't mean to hurt your feelings, but the devil got you. He got in there and distracted you. You see, he's not going to mess with you if you're no threat to him, why would he mess with you? But if you're a threat to him, oh, he's going to try to mess things up. He'll try to get in there and get you arguing with your spouse about stupid stuff. He'll get you distracted with some financial struggles that then become your focus, and now you're not thinking about Jesus very much. Health problems that constantly weigh you down very real things that you have to deal with. He will do things that are so clever 
so sneaky, you don't even realize it's happening. I thank God that this morning there is nobody holding a whimpering, crying, moving around little baby in the room because this could be insulting. I love babies. I, there is no, it's not a joke. I love holding babies whether they're crying or not. Absolutely love babies. I wasn't always that way, but I am that way. Once I had my first child, that life changed. Holding my baby girl changed my whole world. Some of you know what that's like. Well, somebody could bring a baby into this room that's not whimpering and crying, that's just quiet, cute little thing, sleeping, come in here and sit right here in these three chairs, the family with a baby and a, maybe in a little carrier, and people around the baby will start looking at the baby. Look at that cute. That'd be me. You sit in front of me with a baby, I'm going to be watching that baby. I'm not going to be listening to the preacher very well. And that devil can use something as innocent as a family that just wants to come check out a new church, and they bring their baby, and the people are distracted by an innocent little baby. There's nothing evil about a little baby or a family bringing their baby into church with them. It's quiet. But the devil will use that to get somebody who's sitting behind me when I'm going, oh, look at that cute little baby. Somebody right behind me was just thinking about what the preacher was saying and thinking, I need to change. And then they got distracted by this other preacher who's sitting up there going, look at the baby. <laughs> the devil, you don't see it coming unless, unless you are sober-minded and alert. That's how you're going to see it coming. Some of us are that way on a regular basis. We work at it. And when the devil is roaring, and I talked about this before, the reason why the, the lion is out there roaring is because he's doing, besides he's intimidating, he's also doing the echolocation, trying to make sure he knows exactly where you are. The devil knows where you are. And sometimes there's, there are people among us who they're sober-minded, they're alert, and they're very tuned in the devil is attacking. I see it happening. And we get that phone call. How you doing? I'm okay. Okay, well, I've been praying for you. I noticed the other day, sometimes we're on that other end of that phone call. We're oblivious. We don't realize what's happening. But these people that are sober-minded and alert, paying attention, they're helping us. Let them. Not all of us are good at that. But Peter says we're supposed to get it together, be sober-minded and alert because the devil is on the prowl like a roaring lion. The next verse, verse 9, Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Resist him. Why in the world would God inspire Peter to have to tell us to resist the devil? Because we don't automatically do it. We have to be instructed to do it. We don't automatically become alert. We have, we have to be told, be alert. We're not automatically going to be sober-minded. We have to be told, be rational. We're not automatically going to resist the devil. No, in fact, sometimes we do the exact opposite. read a few scriptures up here today. And some of you might even be bothered by some of those scriptures. In fact, you can, if you can imagine what it feels, 
if you're, if you're, imagine me giving this speech in a public high school, and I started saying, listen to your elders, submit to your elders. Do you realize how many high school kids would be like, I'm not doing that. That's stupid. I don't want to be like them. Resist him. Don't just fall into it. Resist him. That's we have to be told to do that. Sometimes we'll cave in. Do you, let me, let's just let this, I want you to play this out in your mind. Let's just say that you're a person that you never, ever say a cuss word. You don't. It's part of your faith and your spiritual journey. You've decided, I cannot say a cuss word anymore. At some point in time in your life, you stopped. But you live in a world where, my goodness, they play it on the radio and music all the time. It's in the movies. If it's a decent movie that's popular at all, then, hey, it's probably going to have some words that fly around in there. At work, there's people, when they lose their temper, those words fly out. We're supposed to not even have those in our head, but they're always coming in our head. But we are committed, and we don't ever do it. And, and then something happens. Something happens, and we just get so angry in front of people that know we never do it, in front of people that know we are Christian, we just let it all fly out. <laughs> Not resisting the devil. So when it plays out like that, do you know what just happened? Those people that looked up to you now don't. They think you're a hypocrite. Did you hear that? Christians don't talk like that. You just lost your ground. And you're not going to get it back very easily. Because every time you try to tell them about anything moral after that, they're going to be looking at you going, yeah, right. I heard the way you talked the other day when you got mad. Resist him. The devil is going to try to get you to do stuff that will completely undermine any ministry that you might be able to do. Don't fall into that. Resist him. Firm in your faith. This is cool. There's some more scripture coming that's going to help us with this. Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood, brotherhood throughout the world. Remember, Peter's writing at a time in history when the church has been scattered and they're being persecuted all over the place. It's a lot like today. A lot of other people are going through the hard times like you are. You're not alone, is what he's saying. Now, I want to take you back to that James 4 passage because it parallels this in an uncanny way. So James chapter 4, I'll start with verse 6. But he gives more grace. God does. He always does. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Does this not sound a whole lot like what we were just reading? Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Listen to this. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. That is so close to what we just read in Peter's writings, the wisdom of James. Now look at the next verse. And after you have suffered, 
Let's pause for a minute because I want to talk about that. And we've been talking about, this is part three, called to suffer, part three. So let's talk about suffering because pain and suffering is one of those things the world has a hard time understanding. In fact, we in the church have a hard time understanding. If God is so loving, why is there so much pain and suffering in the world? Have you not thought about that? A lot of people think about that. So when I met this guy in the gym that had an unusual accent, and he told me his dad was born in India, but moved to the United Kingdom, and then, he was born to missionaries, by the way, moved to the United Kingdom, he became a doctor. And then, so now he's got an English accent mixed in with a little bit of an Indian accent from India. Then he's also, he's moved to Louisiana to work at a leper colony. And this leper colony... He took it over. He was in charge of it. They don't, it's not, they don't call it leprosy like they used to. They call it Hansen's disease. That's the, the official name. Have you heard that? Hansen's disease. We, all, we, we used to think leprosy was this disease where your, um, your fingers fall off and your toes fall off and skin falls off, that kind of thing. Uh, Hansen's disease, what it actually is, it's, it's, it's the deterioration of the nervous system. And it begins deteriorating at the fingertips and the toes, and then it moves its way through the body. And what, what I knew about this man's father, his, the, but the man I met, his name is Dr. Chris Brand. He's a professor at South Puget Sound Community College. And when he told me who he was, I, I don't know who your dad is. And that's because I read some of his dad's books. He wrote some books uh, with Philip Yancey. One of those books is Where is God When It Hurts? Has anybody heard of that book? It's a good read. You should read it. It's an older book, but it's got a lot of good stuff in it. And it tells the story of, of Philip Yancey um, basically telling the story of, the, of Dr. Paul Brand. That's the guy's dad. Dr. Paul Brand, while he was down there in, in uh, Louisiana, he developed some amazing technology. Uh, some, he came up with an idea. Uh, his research produced an innovative way in reutilizing tendons. What he noticed was, so leprosy is the deterioration of the nervous system, so basically people couldn't feel it. They'd be walking along and they'd get blisters on their feet like you and I, and you get a blister on your foot, you start favoring that foot. You know, take it easy, because your body's telling you, pain, take it easy, it needs to heal. And they, these people didn't do that. You know, it's like you smash your thumb with a hammer. Ow! You're not going to grab something with that hand. It hurts. Because your pain is telling you, don't use that thumb for a while. Not them. They could smash their thumbs and they'd just keep on going. They could have blisters on their feet and keep walking for 10 more miles. Getting blisters upon blisters and then losing all of the skin underneath. And it rolling up in their shoes and they don't even know it. They're bleeding. They don't even know it. Have broken bones. They don't know it. And so Dr. Brand, Dr. Paul Brand, figured out a way. He ended up working with people that had mangled feet and mangled hands. And he thought, you know, I think I can still give them some functionality. And he developed a way to reutilize ligaments and tendons and give them functionality back to their hands and their feet. And he, he came up with such incredible advances in this type of surgery that the University of Washington said, we got to have that guy. 
And they pulled him up and he became a mentor to doctors to teach them how to do these kinds of surgeries. And that's how this guy ended up in my gym in Lacey, Washington. Because his dad moved up here with the whole family. But what we learn about the idea of Hansen's disease is that pain teaches. A mother, in the book, Where's God When It Hurts? A mother found her baby that was crawling, just started crawling. She turned and looked and was devastated. They had moved into a rental house and it was looked clean, but the baby found something that was between the refrigerator and the cabinet. There was a razor. And the baby was having fun playing in its own blood because it didn't feel the pain. Pain teaches. Suffering teaches, if you let it. Pain is a good thing. A loving God has given us pain and suffering so that we learn. If you've raised a child or been around children very long, when you have a small child, if they're going to touch something, you say no, no, and they don't know no very well. If you say hot, they back off. Have you noticed that? Why? Did they touch something hot at some point in time and realize that didn't feel good? Pain teaches. Suffering teaches, if you let it. Some of us, we don't. We just keep going. But Scripture says, and after you have suffered a little while, do you know this is part of God's plan? I mean, we've already, this is part three, called to suffer. You're called to suffer. And after you suffered for a little while, Christian, it's part of the plan, you're going to suffer, it's part of life on earth. The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore. I love that. Restore. I don't know if you know this, you are part of a church that's part of a movement that's called Restoration Movement. Did you know that? Raise your hand high if you did know that. You should look up the history on that if you don't know it. It's fascinating. I'm not going to give a bunch of history to you this morning, but it's a wonderful concept. And the idea is that we're part of a church that we know we're made up of imperfect people. The only way you get a perfect church is to get rid of all the people. <laughs> you don't have church anymore. As long as you have people come into a, a church service and you have a church family, it's made up of imperfect people. But, and so the church will never be perfect, but we, the idea is we want to restore it to the New Testament to the best of our ability. Always learning how can we do better than we've been doing. We want to get closer and closer to the New Testament model as best we can, realizing we've never arrived and we probably never will, but we want to get as close as we can to the model that we've been given in the New Testament. And that's a restoration church. The idea of confronting in the Bible. The idea of going to someone when they're caught in sin is always to restore. And when you've gone through your time of suffering, God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, because you do have self-doubts when you're going through hard times, strengthen and establish you. Now I want to talk to you about that word establish because that seems to stand out here but God will do all these things to help us in these difficult times after our suffering here's the Greek word you can see it up behind me here's how you say it in fact it, we I'm, I'm gonna say it the way you say it in Greek but a word's gonna come to your mind Themaliosa. 
Uh, Thelmaliosi is in this particular context. Does it sound like Thelma or even Thelma Louise? Isn't that cool? <laughs> but the way you translate it literally is, watch this behind me, foundation. It sounds a little different, but if you read it this way, look at this. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and foundation you. I know it doesn't really fit very well, but it's very encouraging. Our God of all grace will foundation you. Does that give you this idea of stabilization in a very ultimate way? That's so cool. After you go through your suffering, this is what God will do. All of these things plus foundation you. Our last verse in our text today. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. We're supposed to seek first his kingdom so we don't stress over things. We got that. Because Jesus is, when he rose from the dead... He ascended to heaven and was enthroned at the right hand of God. Made, he was made King of kings and Lord of lords. And if you live for him, he is your king. So live like it. To him be the dominion forever and ever, so be it. That's what amen means. So here we go. Call to suffer, part three. He will take care of you. Five things we get from our text and beyond today. Be confident, but not arrogant. Focus on kingdom things. In other words, go ahead and let Jesus tell you, don't worry and don't get mad about him telling you that. Three, be rational and alert. The devil is on the prowl. Four, focus on the goal despite the distractions. Because if you are really one who is focused on the goal, if you're determined to go to heaven and take as many people with you as possible, the devil is going to try to slow you down, trip you up, and keep you from even focusing on the goal yourself. Focus on the goal. <clears throat> and fifth, trust God. That's what this is about, really. As all these things are happening, as... As you go through life struggles, and I don't know what your particular ones are. Some of you I do, but I don't know all of your life struggles. But we all have struggles. We all go through difficult times. Right now, some of us are going through difficult times. Trust God. That's what this is all about, really. I want to introduce you to someone, a picture of him at least, and his name, and he's got a quote, David Goggins. Anybody know who this guy is? I hadn't heard of him until about three months ago. This is what he said. I've been guided by something much more powerful, the path of most resistance. Talent, not required. This guy <clears throat> has served in three branches of the United States military. He's the only guy to serve in all three of the uh, advanced combat uh, divisions in three branches and excel in all three. He didn't start off that way. His life was... He had a tumultuous life. He, he had a situation he remembers as a young boy. His father used to beat his mother. And one day he decided to try to stop it as a little boy. He jumped on his father's back 
and tried to stop him from beating his mother. And the little boy then took the beating of his lifetime. He could barely move. The mother said, that's enough. Can't do this anymore. So she took her boy and they moved away from the abusive situation. The mother had to work multiple jobs just to try to make ends meet. The boy grew up in poverty. When he went to school, he was made fun of and picked on in school too. Got beat up a lot. One day he was watching the Marines that were in a swimming. He was in some sort of a swimming class. And he saw these Marines going through this rigorous swimming training. And he thought, now that's a tough guy right there. Here this man who was overweight watching these fit men. He thought, I, I should do that. So he did. And he went through these, all these different things. And by the way, he's known. People call this man the strongest man in the world or the toughest man in the world. Uh, you should look up his name and find out how many chin-ups he's done. He holds the world record for chin-ups. But for the longest time, he was embarrassed about his story until he went through the rigors of going through these military trainings and, and, and served. He, and then he did the, set this world record. He finally thought, you know what? I need to face this. So he found his biological father. Decided to talk to him about his life and how he had lived his life constantly being afraid of everybody else, like he was going to get another beating from somebody else. He confronted his biological father, and his biological father broke down in tears. And he learned his biological father's story, that that's the way he was raised too. He was also beaten. That's what he knew. And now this man travels the world telling his story. He's no longer embarrassed. He no longer tries to put away his suffering. He said, that's what made me who I am, my suffering. Christians, if you're suffering right now, if you've been through a lot of suffering, take courage with the Word of God. He can get you through it. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word that is so powerful and so relevant. God, sometimes we just feel like giving up. But there you are, showing us your word and encouraging us and showing us that you do have a plan and you can take care of us if we stay focused. Forgive us when we have allowed ourselves to get too discouraged. And help us. Help us to regain our focus if that's what we need. And Lord, if there are people around us that we need to encourage, help us to, help us to reach out and do that as well. Help us to be alert for them if they are not for themselves. God, we love you. We just want to show you that by how we live. So we ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen.